the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Ron Arbaugh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock, we take your phone calls and answer Bible questions. At least that's what we hope to do. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, If you're driving in your car, I just want you to be safe. You can use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for the main number is 340-9585. Hope you had a great weekend. We did yesterday, or yeah, yesterday, I've got to remember what day it is. Uh, We had lots and lots of rain and lightning and storms here, so uh, attendance was a little bit down, but we had... uh, uh, good study in Luke chapter 8. In fact, I got a couple of questions about yesterday's Bible study that uh, have been sent in, so I'll get to those in just a couple of moments. Um, but I hope you had a great weekend in church. Let me spend just another couple of minutes with you. It was a little bit of a, a tiring weekend. You know that we did the program on Thursday and Friday uh, with Paula here uh, from the Pastors Conference, and the Pastors Conference was great. I uh, appreciate all of your prayers. Some of you let us know that you were praying for us. We're grateful for that. Uh, but it got to be an adventure. Paul and I woke up yesterday morning, or Saturday morning, I'm, I'm confused, Saturday morning, and uh, we're going to go to the conference, and we got a bulletin from Southwest Airlines that because of the weather, our flight had been canceled. So we drove back with some people that uh, drove up there, um, and and. The, the weather was so bad in the storm, so it was a long trip, six and a half hours, uh, but we made it, so we're running just a little bit low on energy, but other than that, everything is great. Let me get to some questions that have been sent in to yesterday from yesterday's message. Uh, the first one is from our email inbox from Scott, uh, and he said, could the reference to watch in Luke twelve thirty eight mean specific periods of times, like hundreds of years, or thousands. And here's what the verse says. And if you should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those uh, servants. Now, the, the parable that Scott is talking about is one that we talked uh, or I taught on yesterday. And Scott, one of the things you have to, to, to do to divine terms here uh, is, is really look at the context of the passage. And any time that you're dealing with the parable, uh, we have to remember that there's only one main point that's being made. And Jesus' point yesterday was to being ready, to being alert. And, uh, of course, there's symbolism in the parable. The master is a reference to Jesus, but not specifically. 
Uh, it's just the storage. If, if the master of the servants comes in now or they do not expect and finds them not doing what they're supposed to do, then they'll be beaten with many blows kind of thing. And the idea is that we are always to be ready. So in, in assigning a definition to the second or third watch uh, as hundreds of years or thousands of years, I think, Scott, is to miss the point. All it means is no matter how long it takes, we need to be ready for the Lord's return. And that's really the context of the parable uh, and the point in terms of application for us. We always need to be ready. I told the story yesterday, uh, Scott, as you know, if you were here or watched it online, um, of of the the 1970s hippies who, who uh, right in the middle, uh, the height of the Jesus movement, um, those, those hippies were so excited about Jesus to come back. Uh, well, we read in the book of, of uh, First and Second Thessalonians that the same thing was true um, with the early church. They, they expected Jesus to come back at any moment. They really and truly expected that um, he was going to come in their lifetime. And when people started dying in Thessalonica, then they got worried, and that gave opportunity for the enemy and for the false teachers that the enemy was using to say, well, you know, they just missed it. There's nothing they can do, and they're, they're consigned to hell. And Paul writes and says, no, that's not the case. So um, the idea is, is we're excited because Jesus might come, but even if he delays his coming, we're to stay faithful, we're to stay obedient, we're to remain in that place where God can use us for others. So please, um, nothing specific there. And never, ever, Scott, try to read too much into the parable. Hope you enjoyed the study yesterday, Scott. Thank you very much. I have another question from yesterday's message, but first we'll go to Reuben from Seguin. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today, sir? Reuben, I'm doing well, thanks. I have a question for you uh, on healing. Um, I went to a uh, quote-unquote revival over the weekend, and there was a prophet there. And uh, uh, he called me out and spoke some things. And, I mean, I didn't know whether to believe him or not, you know, because he could have, you know, everybody cries at night at some point or another. He said that the Lord had seen my cries, my tears at night, and that he had heard my cries, and that uh, he said that uh, God was going to restore everything that the enemy took back from me. I mean, you know, so I'm just like, okay, I mean, that's a pretty broad generalization of, you know, of something to say, because, I mean, he could say that to anyone, and that would be true. Yeah. So the biggest thing that got me was because uh, I walk with a cane because of my back and I'm losing strength in my legs. And so he prayed for me and he goes, throw the cane away. And I'm just like, uh, I'm like holding it in my hand. I'm like, uh, I'm not going to do that. He goes, throw the cane away. So I just let it fall on the ground. And then he prayed and, you know, in the name of Jesus, you know, I command for you to walk and everything. I command the pain for it to go away. Bottom line is, is that it, it didn't go away. The pain didn't go away. I'm still using the cane. Uh, I went back Saturday because I was part of the, the, the praise and worship team, the band I was playing. And he basically told me, he goes, he goes, oh, you have little faith. And that's all he said. And I'm just like, I mean, he doesn't know how sensitive I am. Mm-hmm. Because now, now all week long, I've been thinking, all weekend long, and all day today, I've been thinking, do I not have faith in God that he can heal me? You know, and is God mad at me because I picked up the cane? You know, my pain Ruben, let me, let me, Ruben, let me, let me help you. Can, can I ask you a question first? Why did yeah. you go with it? Because you were performing? Why did they go to it? Yeah, was it because you were performing? Because our, our, band, our band was booked to play. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let me and apologize me to up. you. He just, yeah, let he me just let me apologize me to you, Reuben, on behalf of of the Lord and and um, you know this kind of silly nonsense uh, is just um, I mean these these guys are predators um, uh, they they misrepresent the Lord in all that they do 
uh, and they're absolute predators. Two things that you need to understand. First, there are no prophets today. Um, the gift of prophecy still exists, but that happens when you're when you're declaring the word of God. Um, if God gives you a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, but 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 these charlatans, and that's what they are, that travel around taking multiple offerings and promising people healing and telling them to be dramatic and theatric. And of course, if it doesn't work, they blame your weak faith. Uh, these are the worst kind of wolves in the Church of Jesus Christ. And Reuben, I am so sorry. I, I've known you on the phone on this program for uh, a, a couple of years now, a few years. And with everything you've been through, uh, I can promise you it broke the Lord's heart for him to say those things to you. And um, truth is, there are wolves out there. There are false teachers, and you ran into one. Second thing is that the gift of healing isn't given to a man or to a woman. And then that person goes and sets up some crusade, takes your money, and says, okay, what do you use my gift to heal? The gifts of healing, it's plural in 1 Corinthians. Gifts of healing are those gifts that are given to those who are sick, and then they get healed. Um, you know, every Friday night here uh, at Calvary Chapel, um, Ruben, because we got some time, it's the weekend starting, and uh, we have people come forward uh, to stand in front of the stage when I get ready to, to, to leave the stage. And, and it's uh, some leaders in our church, and there's a bunch of them spread out. And, and there are times when the Lord says, um, the, the power to heal is here. Uh, invite people to come to heal. And sometimes some of those people receive gifts from God, gifts of healing, and they get better. But that certainly doesn't mean that everybody gets healed. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with me. It's just that God, according to his will, sovereignly gives gifts of healing, just like he gives gifts of the Spirit to others. And for for a man to, who, who is supposedly representing God, to tell you that you have little faith because you didn't get healed is as egregious a sin as there could possibly be. So I'm going to ask you, Reuben, and I know you're emotional. I know at times how deep these things hurt. But what I'm going to ask you to do is try to forget as best you can that it ever happened. The enemy's going to try to keep pushing that button to remember. And you have to remember that this guy was a devil himself. And again, I don't know him. So, I mean, he was doing the enemy's work, not the Lord's work. And um, that was not a word from the Lord for you at all. Um, with what you've been through and the way you've handled it, Reuben, I think your faith is fine. So do the best you can to ignore it altogether. And when the enemy brings it back to mind, uh, you're going to simply have to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to the Lord. Sorry you had to go through it, my friend. I will be praying for you all the more. Oh, those things hurt. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Um, you know, I wonder. I, I would just for one moment. Now, this is my flesh. I'm sure speaking, but I'd love to see that false prophet stand before Jesus and explain why he would cause pain to one of God's little ones. I'd also like to ask everybody who goes to those things, why in the world would you ever go to one of those things? Now, again, Reuben was performing there with his band, so he had a reason to be there. But imagine how that hurt the heart of Jesus. And yet these kind of things happen in the church, and it's because people do not know their Bibles. If you knew your Bible, the minute somebody claimed to be a prophet, you would say, false teacher, wolf, or something like that. So, Reuben, again, I'll be praying for you, and on behalf of our Lord, I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, here is a question, the second one from the message yesterday. It's from our email inbox from Nacho. Um, Pastor Ron, when Jesus says in Luke 12, 37b, truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and come and wait on them. Is he, Jesus, referring to himself as he's right here among the disciples serving them? Uh, not sure the answer is no. I, I mentioned in, in response to the other question that this isn't biographical. Jesus isn't speaking specifically of him. 
what he is doing is giving us a message that tells us the servants of the master and, and of course the master uh, is Jesus in, in, in a figurative sense uh, but servants of the master always ought to keep serving and so Jesus isn't saying that I'm going to come and wait on them in the flesh, meaning that, uh, well, because I'm here and I'm the one speaking to you, uh, I'm serving you. That's to miss the point. What he was talking about in this parable was being ready for the master's return. Now, we all know, and I, I told the church yesterday, it's one of my favorite things to talk about is the Lord's return. He's coming soon. They could come at any moment. There's nothing prophetically not sure that has to happen before the um, uh, rapture of the church and what he's telling us using this parable is that we who are believers need to be ready at any moment in fact let me say this we need to be ready every moment because we don't know when that moment is coming now we look around at the world that we live in and we have a tendency to think well well the world can't get any worse well it, it can get worse and it will get worse but Jesus is going to interrupt this world and he's going to call us to be with him. And on that day, and this is what I told the church yesterday, Nacho, you were here. I said, how would you explain to Jesus if he called you in the rapture? Make no mistake, all Christians who are truly born again believers are going to go in the rapture. doesn't matter what you're doing at that moment or how you're living. But, but if you're living in rebellion against God, if there's sin in your life that you're holding on to, and we hear that trumpet call of God. Now, that's not a literal trumpet. I think most of you understand that. It's a, a, a symbolism for readiness. And we're going to hear that trumpet call of God. And instantly we're going to be in his presence. How would you like to look into Jesus' eyes if he raptured you from behind a computer screen looking at filth or raptured you from a sexually immoral relationship? Or men, if you weren't being kind to your wives and children. Or women, if you weren't being obedient, submissive to your husband's leadership. Or what if you were gossiping about somebody? Or maybe you just lost your temper and you take God's name in vain. How would you ever explain that to Jesus? So what he's saying is that when we get raptured, we go to our wedding banquet with Jesus. We are the guests of honor. And Jesus, who ought to be served, is going to be the one who waits on us. And that's a staggering thought. None of us ever think about God serving us. We're supposed to serve Him. But on that day, when we fulfill His wildest dreams, He's going to serve us. And that's why He says it's good for that servant whom the Master finds ready. So, Nacho, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. We always have a lot of response. We talk about the rapture of the church, and I think it's sort of indicative of of the desire that we have in our hearts, all of us, to, to be with Jesus. I mean, it's instinctive. We want to be with him. One of the other thing that I said yesterday before I get to another question is this one. Um, I understand when people love their lives. I love my life. I absolutely love my life. I, I'm married to the most beautiful girl in the world. She actually loves me, believe it or not. Um, I have a church family uh, that I treasure. And um, I never thought I'd be able to say this before I got saved. And, and, and they love me. Um, it, it's, it's a wonderful life every day. I, I have no idea what God has got in store. And he leads me into these crazy places and we do these exciting things. And so I understand the sentiment that says, you know, I, I like my life. I'm not ready for Jesus to come back. But if that describes any of you, I, I used the example in the message yesterday. I've had people say to me, well, I want to see my kids grow up. I don't want Jesus to come back now. I want to see my grandkids or I want to see my kids be success, those kind of things. That's not to know, to really know who Jesus is. If you really know him, then being with him trumps every other earthly desire. And it demonstrates 
that our heart is not in heaven, that, that instead our heart is on the things of this world. And what Jesus wants us to do is be committed to him 100% every day. And here's what I promised my church yesterday. I'll promise all of you in the radio audience. If you'll do that, your life will be richer, more satisfying. The abundant life Jesus promises, your life will be better than you ever imagined it could be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the things of this world that, that will help you serve Jesus, those things will be added unto you. All we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus. Don't lose sight of the fact that one day, and that could be any moment, don't lose sight of the fact that one day we're going to look into those eyes blazing like the fire of judgment. We're going to look into that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. We're going to hear that voice that sounds like many rushing waters, and, and that voice is going to call our name. It's a new name. One that we've never heard before, but we'll know instantly it's our name in heaven. And we will say, I never dreamed it could be like this. And I always picture Jesus just smiling at me like, well, of course you couldn't dream like this. So the point is, we need to be ready because Jesus could come at any moment. 340-9585. We have a caller who says, is there a Calvary Chapel you would recommend in the Ventura, California area? Um, yeah, there there are. Uh, I'm, I'm for, for right now, the, the name of the pastor skips my mind. But in that area there in Westlake Village, um, um, Oxnard, uh, Ventura, and beyond, there, there's a whole bunch of Calvary chapels in that area. Uh, I, I would go to calvarychapel.com, no, cca.com, and um, look up those in California. And uh, you're going to find a bunch of them there. And yeah, I've got some friends there um, from from the Valley to Simi Valley to um, Oxnard to Ventura, that, that whole area in there. And some a little bit more inland to Napa and some of the others. So, um, uh, you know, what I'll do uh, tonight is I will I will get some specific uh, Calvary chapels in and around Ventura and get them to you. Thousand Oaks, there's also a really good Calvary Chapel there. So uh, I'll get that information, and I'll have it on the program tomorrow. So if you'll turn in, tune in rather at the top of the hour uh, tomorrow at 4 o'clock, I will have that. My producer's right now making a note to remind me. 340-9585. Um, oh, I don't have enough time for that one for this half. Uh, here's an anonymous question. How can God be good and moral if he punishes people forever? Uh, anonymous, I want you to think, it, think about God from a different perspective. Here's the thing. When you are were, were born, from that moment you're going to live somewhere forever. And there's only two choices. We live with God or we live apart from God. To live with God, we call heaven. To live apart from God, we call hell. And by definition, that's judgment. We're going to be judged for our sins. So to say, well, how can people live forever and be punished? The fact that we live forever somewhere is already established. So it's not like we just die and stop being. We can't because we're eternal. So here's the thing, Anonymous. You get to choose right now where you're going to spend forever. You know, you ask, how can God be good and moral if he punishes people forever? I would ask you, how can you reject Jesus Christ knowing that the penalty is eternal punishment? You see, all you have to do is say, yes, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. I give you my life. And you don't have to worry about eternal punishment. And we can tell anybody and everybody that they can escape forever any possibility of being judged eternally because Jesus was already judged in our place. So the idea is, is 
it's our choice. We know what God's choice is. His choice is that we would believe in Jesus Christ and live. But he won't force us to do it. And the fact that God is good and moral, and I would add holy and just, is established by the things he's done, the gifts he's given. We have all that information in terms of his attributes in the Bible. And usually, Anonymous, these aren't honest questions. These are the kind of questions that allow someone to justify staying in their sin. Well, I just can't believe that God is good if he's going to punish people forever, so I don't want to serve a God like that. Well, then you won't have to. But you can't escape the consequence. You can't escape the price that you're going to have to pay. Here's one more thing to consider with the last few seconds we've got in this break. How could God, who is perfectly just, forgive me of my sins? I've done horrible things, Anonymous. And God forgave me because he loved me so much that his perfect son was sent to die to take the punishment I deserve for my sins. I'd say that's a pretty good God. You can hear the music. We have 30 minutes left in the Monday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. Let's get right to a question from Jonathan. He says, I think Christians often look foolish because they reject established science like evolution and climate change. What do you think? Jonathan, I, 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 ten things running through my mind at the same time right now. Um, Christians have to make a choice. Um, uh, let, me, let me deal with evolution first. Uh, did God give us the creation account in Genesis, or did he not? If he did, then evolution simply isn't true. And when people say established science, or everybody knows, you have to be really, really careful. Evolution is a theory, a theory with no substance at all. It's a theory that begins with the presumption that there is no God. And my Bible, your Bible, Jonathan says it, fool says in his heart there is no God. And that word fool in Hebrew is the word we get our English word moron from. So to discount God... And to discount his creation account is, according to the word, foolish. Now, you've got to decide who you're going to believe. Is it established science? There's never been any missing link. There's never been a single example in the history of the world of one species turning into another species. There's been evolution within a species, certainly. I always tease the kids here at the school because their feet are so big. We didn't used to have big feet, but but see, things have changed, but that's an in-species thing. And we ought by now to have proof, established proof, if the theory of evolution is true. So to say that it's established science, it's more accurate to say it's established science fiction of the climate change, and this is a big one in our culture, you know that, Jonathan. Most scientists say, not if you look to scientists who are Christians, they don't say the same thing. So is the science being blinded by the Christianity, or is it more likely that those who believe in these things have no relationship with God, don't want a relationship with God, so they're looking for alternative suggestions. Our, our earth has been changing forever. We go through ice ages, and we go through times of he, he, uh, uh, the world heating up. 
Uh, we go through terrible hurricane seasons and fire seasons and rainy seasons. And then other times we go through uh, times of real, real drought. That's just a normal cycle of life. More important than that, Jonathan, is God has promised us. Psalm 46, read the first three verses. Is God in control of this world or not? And I told my church one day that the idea that the world is going to end because of climate change, the chicken little approach, you know, we've got 12 years or it's irreversible. Let me tell you something. The world is still going to be here when Jesus returns. And if he returns today, then there's not going to be 12 years. There's going to be a thousand years. And then there's going to be a need for a new earth and a new heaven. I think what you need to deal with, Jonathan, is that believing, not believing in God is what looks foolish. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve, the creation account. And truly, if Adam and Eve were not the first two people on this earth, created by the finger of God himself, then we're all lost because our whole faith falls apart. Honestly, re-evaluate. Let's go to James on line one from San Antonio. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, sir. Hey, thank you for taking my phone call. Uh, uh-huh. There was a there was a, a verse in um, the Gospel of John where John was uh, explaining was explaining to uh, some of the local Pharisees and scribes uh, a little bit about. Um, our relationship to God and his relationship to God, they were coming back and they, they were saying that you're blaspheming. We're, we're wanting to stone you because you're blaspheming. You're saying that you're God. Mm-hmm. Jesus replies and he says, uh, but God himself says that even you are God. Um, I, I know what there's, that's referring to, but I still never quite understood um, that as far as scripturally. Um, can can you do me a favor and just explain that just a little bit more for me, and I'll take that off here. Thank you, James. I can do that. Uh, the verse you're talking about is John chapter five, verse eighteen. Uh, it says, "For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he being uh, was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God." Um, when he talks about the gods, it's, it's a quote from, from the Psalms. And um, there's two uses of the word gods, in, or God, a big G, of course, we know what that is, a little g. Um, the idea is gods, in the time of the judges, there were men who were raised up as judges. They were as gods. They, they had the authority and the power from God that was given to them. They were as gods in the sense that they had authority and power over the people's lives. So Jesus is simply saying, why does this surprise you when even God, and he quotes the psalm, says that that, uh, there will be gods among you? And and it's not making themselves equal with God. That's not the the point. Jesus was, was dealing with contrast. So what he was saying, James, is that that um, I'm equal with God because I am God. And he was establishing a link between his authority and the authority of others that they had over him. When he said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Not only that, but whenever Jesus told these parables, he knew, or the people knew that he was talking about them, and 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 they knew that he was making himself equal with God because he was God. So um, I, I don't see in the John chapter five passage. I know where you're referring to another gospel, but in John I don't see the uh, the reference to the psalm. But uh, I'll do a little bit of homework and and get that back to you tomorrow as well, John or James. Thank you very very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to my friend in San Leandro, Tanya. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Tanya, are you there? 
Oops, I guess we lost. Veronica, oh, she's can you hear me? I can hear you can now. You hear Hi, Tanya. Yes, step. I got you. Okay, I have a question, and um, it has to do with Romans. And I always, I'm always a little. I need clarification when it comes to fear, and yet still having faith, like. I was reading in Romans chapter four, and I've actually I've pulled your study to read and, and listen to. But you know me, I don't have much patience. I, I just got to know. <laughs> um, and, in, and in verse Romans chapter four, verse nineteen and twenty, talking about Abraham, and in verse twenty he said he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Now. That's where I'm confused, because I remember Abraham denying Sarah as his wife. I remember him taking Hagar as a, to have Ishmael. So I'm confused, Pastor Ron. Like, what is unbelief and then fear? Is my question making sense? Like, I'm trying to understand how, how Paul could say he never was wavering when he took matters into his own hands, I guess if that makes sense. Because sometimes I get afraid, I'm scared, you know, I I get a little confused in that department to where is it, is my faith unwavering if I'm scared kind of thing? Um, <laughs> that's kind of my, that's, that's my question. Does that make sense, yeah, that, Pastor Ron? Yes, it, it does make sense, Tanya. It's a great question. Thanks, Papa. Thank you. I can do it. Um, you know, we um, always think that if we, if our faith is strong enough, we won't have any doubts, we won't have any fears. Um, we all have fears, we all have doubts. But the contrast in Romans with Abraham, and, and, and without wavering in his faith is probably not the, the, the correct translation. The NIV says without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Now, what, what we have in Abraham's life, and it's a wonderful, wonderful picture for all of us, is we have Abraham believing the word of God. And yet, after going through trials, after going through difficult circumstances, um, there would be doubts creeping in. You remember John the Baptist, Tanya? Uh, even he doubted who Jesus was and what he came to do because Jesus didn't meet his expectations. Well, sometimes when um, God says something's going to happen, it doesn't happen for a long period of time. You know, the fact that, that God told Abraham he was going to be the father of, of many nations, um, and yet had to wait 25 years for that promise to come to fruition, those are things that cause us to doubt. We know he doubted when um, um, there was a famine and he took his family to, to Egypt. Um, we know he doubted when his wife came to him and said, um, you know, I don't think this baby thing's going to happen the way we think it's going to happen. So Hagar, her maidservant uh, in that culture, uh, if the maidservant had a baby, then the baby belonged to, to her master or mistress in this case. And so she took matters into her own hands. So her faith weakened. But, but Abraham knew what God had said and he believed. Again, that doesn't mean we don't have doubts. And when we are afraid, Tanya, um, that's what the purpose of faith is. Faith uh, overcomes fear. I, I call it faith being the antidote for fear. But the fact that we have doubts, the fact that we're afraid sometimes, doesn't negate that we believe. It's just one of those times when we have to say to the Lord, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. We got so much going on here at Calvary Chapel, and the Lord is 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 in a, a, a time now where He's really speaking to my heart about some of the things that He's ready to do. And Tanya, the truth is, I believe everything God tells me, but but I also have to deal with the bank account balance that has no money in it. And say, Oh Lord, we're barely surviving now. How are we going to do these things? That's not unbelief. It would only be unbelief if I stop being obedient. It doesn't keep me from worrying. It doesn't keep me from being afraid. But what faith does is enables me to decide in those times when I'm worrying or in those times when I'm uh, afraid. Faith helps me decide on whose side I'm going to end up on. Am I going to give in to my 
worry or am I going to give in to my fear? Or am I going to set my fear and worry aside and continue to trust God? Well, that describes Abraham's walk. There's another great example in Abraham's life. I think that is even the best example. It comes from Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his only son. And he begins that three-day walk to Calvary. Um, and at some point, um, he, he, he wrestles with it. You know, he must have started out so angry. Um, why would you ask this of me, God? I can't believe you would do this. This is so inconsistent with your character, with your nature. And yet when they left for that three-day journey, Abraham looked at his wife, Sarah, and said, the lad and I will return. And yet for three days he had to wrestle with it. And finally he concluded that, well, God, you promised me that the whole world was going to be blessed through Isaac, so if I kill him, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. And Hebrews 11 says that figuratively that's what happened. He was raised from the dead because Abraham knew he was as good as dead. So the doubts that we have as humans, faith is the answer. If it were true, Tanya, that if we had enough faith, we would never have any doubts or we would never be afraid of anything. Well, then it would be easy to walk by faith, but our faith is always going to get tested. And I'm sure you've heard me say this before. Faith is like a muscle. It needs to be exercised continually. And when we stop exercising our faith, that's when we begin to sort of lose uh, sight of, of the promises of God. Tanya, thanks very much. Look forward to seeing you, I hope, really, really soon. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Jamie says, how can I explain to people about miracles? I was sharing about Peter walking on water, and they almost laughed at me. You know, uh, Jamie, I think the other 11 disciples sort of laughed at Peter when he did it too. So here's what you do when you're sharing with people about Peter walking on water, and they say, you really, you believe that? Say, yeah, I really do. And if they continue to make fun of you, here's what you should say. You should say, you know what, here's the chapter and the verses. Check it out yourself. You see, unbelief can't see with eyes of faith. Unbelief wants to explain away miracles, because if it's true that Peter walked on water, If that really happened, then everybody who's living in sin, who hears that story, needs to respond by believing in Jesus, which means they're going to have to stop sinning, and they don't want to stop sinning. So it's easier just to say, oh, forget it. You know, that happened to Jesus all the time, and they were watching the miracles that he did. All the while, they're planning to kill him, and they, they see with their own eyes the miracles. They see the demons being cast out. So did Peter walk on water? Of course he did. But it takes faith to see that. And until Jesus comes into their heart, until the Holy Spirit moves on their heart, it's easier to point fingers and laugh. And the truth is, that's got to be okay with you, Jamie. So explain to him that you serve a God that does miracles. Not like this stuff Reuben called about. But we serve a God who parted the Red Sea. That's pretty impossible. But God did it. We serve a God who made water come from a rock. That's really impossible, but God did it. And somebody will say, how do you know? How can you believe that? Well, it's because we serve a God that the historical facts demonstrate was murdered on a cross and he didn't stay dead. And not to believe that miracle condemns somebody to hell for eternity. So don't talk to him so much about miracles. Talk to him instead about the good news that Jesus Christ came to forgive sinners. And he proved that only he could forgive sins. They killed him. He's alive. And rest your case. And then let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. Here is a question from Jeffrey. Pastor Ron, I know that you think penal substitutionary atonement 
is a is an essential doctrine, but why? Because some Christians don't believe that. Uh, I believe it's essential because if Jesus didn't take our place, what, what, what's God going to do with the punishment on our sins? Listen to this, Jeffrey. This is a messianic prophecy, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here's the key. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him and by his wounds. We are healed. So for us to have peace with God, God's wrath had to be appeased. Now, when I talk about God's wrath, it's not God throwing a hissy fit. It's not God having a temper tantrum. It's God's justice. God can't overlook sin. So when God decided to forgive me, how could he do that except to to punish sin? And all judgment is God's wrath, but all judgment is because of God's attribute of holiness. He couldn't just wink at sin and say, well, you know, since I want to forgive him, I'm just going to forget it ever happened. No, before that could happen, before he could forget our sins, our sins needed to be punished. And Jesus said, basically, I love them so much, I'll take the punishment. And so if there was no atonement, if there was no substitute, if God's wrath wasn't satisfied, then we would all still be lost in our sin. And so to deny penal substitutionary atonement is to deny that Jesus took your place on the cross. I think the biggest problem, Jeffrey, is that people think, well, I just can't imagine why God would be so angry. I don't want to think of God as this wrath, vengeful God. But it's not his wrath the way we have wrath. It's his justice being poured out. If one sin in this world ever goes unpunished, one sin, then none of our sins are covered. I would ask, Jeffrey, the people who don't believe in penal substitution and atonement, I would ask them, well, then how did your sins get punished? And they would answer probably, well, God doesn't punish us, but but he has to punish sins. There has to be consequence. And that's why Jesus, for six hours... underwent the full wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So Jeffrey, if you're struggling with this, remember, his anger against sin has to be satisfied. Because he is holy and he's just. If God ever once just overlooks sin, then we are all still lost in our sin. That's pretty essential in my view. I know a lot of the Orthodox and Eastern um, versions of the church have kind of done away with penal substitutionary atonement. Um, But, boy, that's a tough one because they do so at their own risk. Dale wants to know, why are there so many Bible translations? Dale, because people speak differently now than they used to? Um, because book publishers like to make money? Um, people read at different levels? People understand at different levels? Uh, so there are different Bible translations. It doesn't mean they're different. It doesn't mean they contradict or are in conflict with one another. Uh, it just means somebody looked at the text and said, well, I think it would be better stated this way, and they do that for their own purposes. Here is a question that I have not had for years. I think the very first couple of months that I was in this uh, on this program, um, we had this question. I haven't heard it in a long time. I hope they're not making a comeback. It's from Peter. And he wants to know, are Bible codes real? Now, if you don't know what a Bible code is, uh, there was a teaching. Um, uh, I'm going to say the guy's name, and I might have it wrong, but I think it was Grant Jeffrey. And he wrote a book called The, the Bible Codes. 
And what he said was there were secret codes hidden in the Bible. And he, with the help of computers, found these secret codes, and there were secret messages. And Peter, it was nonsense then, and it's nonsense now. Again, I said, I hope they're not making a comeback. But these are the kind of things where Christians really look foolish. Not because we reject evolution or because we reject uh, climate change. We, we, we accept a Jesus who's in control and Jesus who's holding all things together. But this is the kind of nonsense that makes Christians look foolish. Um, looking for secret messages. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, I have much more to tell you. I can tell you now, so I'm going to put it in a secret code. He said, but I will tell you later when he, the Holy Spirit, comes. He will lead you in all truth. So no, God doesn't hide things. He doesn't speak in riddles. Whatever God has to say to us, he's already said, Hebrews 1.1 says, in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we need to do, Peter, is read the Bible for what it says, not look for what it doesn't say. So these really caused some problems for some Christians. They were trying to find these codes. It was like those codes validated the Word of God. What validates the Word of God is the truth and the power of the Word of God. So Peter, no, the Bible codes aren't real. Avoid them. If you're studying uh, the books about them, find something else to study. Hey, we're about at the end of the program. Let me remind you that because it's Monday night tonight, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. A great night for the whole family. Um, Linda McMillan will be teaching the ladies in the book of Judges. Pastor Ken teaching the men. Our high school pastor, Pastor Nelly, uh, the high school age students, and Chris Sanchez, the junior hires. And we've got child care for the little ones. They'll learn about Jesus, too. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.